Welcome to Works in Theory Podcast, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Nate, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Alicia and Tom. Good evening, or day, or morning. Oh my gosh, good, good time. time to you <laughs> all. A good time was had by all. <laughs> and uh, today, we're going to be discussing uh, two shorter works by uh, the anarchist author David Graeber. Uh David Graeber is uh, probably one of my favorite anarchist theorists. Uh, he was an anthropologist and activist. Um, that He was a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. Uh, he was very heavily involved in Occupy Wall Street. He's often credited with coming up with the phrase, we are the 99%. Highly recommend all of his books, Death the First 5,000 Years, Utopia of Rules, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. Um, but the two pieces we're going to be talking about today are called Are You an Anarchist? The Answer May Surprise You, and Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. And I think that sort of the question we're trying to answer today, if we're trying to answer a question or what the theme of today's episode is going to be, is sort of what anarchism is uh, in like the broadest sense, uh, at least you know through David Graeber's sort of lens of it. I also really enjoyed David Graeber's work. This has been a fun read, so I look forward to this episode, and I hope all of our listeners do too. Yeah, I've been very sad every time that I remember that he passed away recently. Uh, just uh, getting to him a little bit too late, right? So I end up reading the stuff and just, it's like, what could have been? Because it's just, he's already got quite a bit. That's really incredible, and I feel like it was just starting to take off, and then he passed away like uh, in September. And yeah, we should say, listener, that we're recording this at the beginning of 2021, um, and David Graeber passed away, uh, like Tom said, at the beginning of September 2020. So it's still pretty recent. It is reasons that we wanted to to go over these today. Uh, so to dive right into it, uh, I figured if we're going to be talking about Graeber's conception of anarchism. Uh, we'll start with some of the explicit things he he lays out at the beginning of these books. Uh, so at the beginning of Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, uh, David Graeber quotes Peter Kropotkin, who you may remember from our previous episodes on mutual aid. He quotes Kropotkin in the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, where he wrote the entry on anarchism. And uh, Kropotkin's entry reads, Anarchism is the name given to a principle or theory of life and conduct under which society is conceived without government, harmony in such a society being obtained not by submission to law or by obedience to any authority, but by free agreements concluded between the various groups, territorial and professional, freely constituted for the sake of production and consumption, as also for the satisfaction of the infinite variety of needs and aspirations of a civilized being. That's one of those classic Kropotkin quotes that sounds like it was written at the end of the 1800s or, you know, in a wordier time. But I am really glad that Graeber quotes Kropotkin here because it is cool to see our characters overlapping already in the history of anarchism, just like in any other 
history really or um in this piece graber talks a lot about academia and the academy and how work plays off of each other um but i also think that it's uh Interesting that David Graeber chose to use a quote attributed to one of the, whatever it is, like the the original anarchist canon, because uh, something, and I don't know if this is where we want to start getting, just dive right into the text or not, but there's a part that I really appreciated where they talked about anarchism not ever really being invented or theorized by any individual, um, contrasting that with Marxism, but something that is as old as humankind. Yeah, I really love that too. Yeah, I think you're talking about in fragments of an anarchist anthropology. Uh, Graeber says something along the lines of like the uh, the founding fathers of anarchism, like Kropotkin, etc., uh, didn't really think that they were inventing anything new. They didn't like see themselves as like at the beginning of a new like school of social theory or something. They were just like, people want to organize themselves. They don't, you know, want to be oppressed and they want to help each other out through mutual aid. And that's not, you know, that's not a new school of sociological theory. That's just people being people, kind of. The Kropotkin quote is great because it's got this, you know, it's got the typical Kropotkin-y, you know, it's like what, what one sentence made of like a thousand words. Whoever gives this different quote of, uh, you know, what uh, of what you can think of anarchism, I guess. Where basically, if you're not a utopianist, you're a schmuck. <laughs> and I thought that was a very cool way to look at it. Like, if you can't think big about a better, better world, then like, what is the even point in trying? And that quote came from a name that I hadn't heard of before, incidentally, Jonathan Feldman. And it was quoted from the Indigenous Planning Times, which is a paper or a magazine or a publication that um, we couldn't actually get our hands on to read Jonathan Feldman's work in there. But I guess it's defunct now. And it was such a tangent when I started looking. I'm like, I don't have days to investigate this one quote. I'm sorry. I'm going to just drop it in and say it's good. Because <laughs> it but, is. Uh, it is a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it kind of was, was frustrating when I was like, all I can find when I search for this, like Kropotkin stuff, all I can find is references to this paper. Mm, interesting that's funny i love that quote i love the idea of um like something integral to anarchism being that you have to believe that a better world is possible basically you have to be in uh yeah absolutely uh, maybe we could go on to flesh out a little bit more the two main principles of anarchist theory that graber relies on in this piece of work yeah so these these are two principles of anarchist theory that 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 he brings up like really early on in, I think, fragments of an anarchist anthropology, right? Yeah, everything we've been focusing on so far has been from um, fragments of an anarchist anthropology. We haven't touched on the second work yet or the other work yet. The two principles are a better world is possible and it's right to try to imagine it and no vanguardism. Part of the reason I wanted to include these in here is because, you know, we're making an anarchist theory podcast and these are apparently two principles of anarchist theory. So I wanted to to see what you all thought about this. A better world is possible and it's right to try to imagine it. I think that we're probably all in agreement on that. Yeah, I would say it's one of the more difficult things with thinking about like an anarchist society and thinking about previous societies, reading about places that have existed and tried different things. 
and realizing how far we are maybe from that better world and realizing in my own life how infrequently I've actually imagined a better world. But I do think it's really important that people think in in a utopic way. It's not like a fruitless effort. It's not something that doesn't produce anything. It lets you really concretely understand, I think, what kind of world you're imagining to live in so that when you get into some debate with somebody or you get into some discussion, I guess would be a better way to put it, um, about what kind of world you want to have, you're not just quibbling over uh, policy decisions or something that is framed around what our current world is like, but you're able to really imagine this really alien idea, alien to us anyway. Yeah, one of the big ideas of anarchism that has always stuck with me is prefiguration. And I think that utopian imagination is critical to that. A quote that's famously attached to this idea is, coincidentally perhaps, um, mentioned later on in this paper, the idea of building a new world within the shell of the old and how important it is to get in the habit of self-organization and doing stuff like, um, you know, getting together with your neighbors and doing solidarity and mutual aid. And you don't even have to give them those names, but treating others the way that you utopia in your utopian imagination would want to be treated. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think leads directly into the second point about vanguardism where we're not waiting for someone to come along and tell us how to be anarchists and how to do things correctly. And to like uphold it, is is that correct, Nate? I'm I'm just spouting things now, but <laughs> Nate, fat check. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm not the vanguard of anarchism. You know, that's me. <laughs> Validate this, but no, but I think it's important, right? Because like, uh, it, you know, I I brought this up. I said like, how does this sort of like apply to us making a anarchist theory podcast? And well, like, I think it's important that you know we don't we don't think of ourselves as the vanguard of anarchism, right? We're not here to like explain what you need to think about these works that we're doing. We're here to tell you what we think about them and sort of like, uh, you know, work on and work through what we think about them too. Yeah, in a lot exactly. Of cases, like we talked about in the first episode. Yeah, exactly. And work through them together. And like, you know, it, the, uh, the whole, uh, is greater than the sum of its parts here when we're all, uh, figuring this out. And that means listeners. Too. Yeah feedback is always encouraged. So this is really um not to get too into the weeds on our own stuff, but like the process of this podcast has been very interesting. You know, it, it feels it feels anarchist for better and for worse, I guess. Yeah, definitely. No masters, no producers. <laughs> <laughs> Except we just took on a producer. <laughs> Yeah, just I've been talking about this with uh, friends and stuff and like talking about the process of it and how it's just been like this natural evolution that feels like it really, I don't feel like anyone has ever felt uh, shut out or anything, right? That's been really cool. Like that's that's exactly the kind of world I want to live in. Yeah, absolutely. To get like concrete about it, we've been working on this podcast for like a long time and, you know, we've we've taken breaks where we have to if, you know, somebody needs to skip a meeting. There's a lot going on, right? So being mm. critical and conscious of that is also pretty anarchistic, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so just to back up a bit, this this piece uh, 
Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. It's a very short uh, pamphlet, maybe, or essay. I'm not sure what you would call it. But it is written ostensibly to lay out sort of what the field of anthropology can offer to anarchism, and I guess vice versa, what anarchism can offer to the science of anthropology. Um, but I think that like by going through that, he sort of it ends up being a pretty good primer of what he thinks uh, anarchism is in general. So we talked a little bit about how anarchism is is different than some other uh, like sort of radical schools of social thought. Uh, he talks specifically about Marxism uh, in that it sort of doesn't exist in the academy in the same way. And this he thinks has to do you know a little bit with it not being a a sort of separate social theory. Again, it's it's more just a collection of ideas of what it means to be free and how we get free. And so he talks about um, that what anarchism might want is more of a, a low theory, is what he calls it. So like not high-minded policy issues as much as like, I don't know, on the ground sort of uh, what works, what doesn't, grappling with real immediate questions. Right. Where he says, um, I, I'm going to quote real quick from the uh, from the book. It's not just that anarchism does not tend to have much use for high theory, it's that it is primarily concerned with forms of practice. It insists before anything else that one's means must become consonant with one's ends. One cannot create freedom through authoritarian means. In fact, as much as possible, one must oneself and one's relations with one's friends and allies embody the society one wishes to create. I did not realize how weird that would sound saying one so often, but instead of it being, uh, you know, we're going to get there eventually don't worry about the finer details. It's like the finer details are what get us there. Or I guess the finer details of how you how you practice it. Yeah, I think of it sort of like uh, more like down in the dirt, more like, I don't know, um, just immediately practical. I think this is kind of uh, linked to something else he said here, which I thought was interesting, which is that uh, it's sort of linked to that utopian idea. But he differentiates between like sort of utopian dreaming and what he calls like the certainty of authoritarianism. I think that this is connected to that sort of idea of of low theory too, where it's like we're not trying to come up with theories that are encompassing the entire world or attempt to like describe the world perfectly, uh, like certain theories do. Uh, is more just like ideas, like so nobody's he as he says nobody's ever like attached to them enough to become an authoritarian over them. And I think it ties back into. You know that there's no the great the idea of a great man or great man theory and anarchism is really not present. Uh, we don't have you know what, what is, he talks a lot. I think we talked about this already, but uh, Graeber talks about how you know there's Marxism, Leninism, uh, Maoist these things that are like built. They're on, all named after individuals. Exactly, individual. Men, usually, <laughs> nearly always, you know, anarchism instead is built around ideas, anarcho-syndicalism, you know, so we end up with names around the idea instead of names around the people. And that also really helps to not feel particularly attached or attacked if somebody is like, well, I don't believe in, you know, Marx or whatever. I'm like, cool, like, there's things that I don't like about Marx as well. There are things that I like, but it's not it's not a linchpin. It's not a thing that keeps me grounded to what I believe. This this part that he wrote about really hit home for me because this is a thing that I've had to deal with a lot. Whenever you bring up anything related to communism, like anywhere close to it, people want to say, like, you just want to murder a bunch of people. That's basically all people think communism is, is Stalinism. 
Uh, Sowery writes, one has to deal with the inevitable objection that utopianism has led to unmitigated horror as Stalinists, Maoists, and other idealists tried to carve society into impossible shapes, killing millions in the process. I thought that was honestly a very good, succinct way that I think most people think of this. Yeah, definitely. Do you have the rest of that quote, though? I love what he says next. Yeah, so then he goes on to say that this argument belies a fundamental misconception that imagining better worlds was itself the problem. Stalinists and their ilk did not kill because they dreamed great dreams. Actually, Stalinists were famous for being rather short on imagination, but because they mistook their dreams for scientific certainties, this led them to feel that they had the right to impose their visions through a machinery of violence. Anarchists are proposing nothing of the sort on either count. They presume no inevitable course of history, and one can never further the course of freedom by creating new forms of coercion. In fact, all forms of systemic violence are, among other things, assaults on the role of the imagination as a political principle, and the only way to begin to think about eliminating systematic violence is by recognizing this. I I thought that was interesting. I never really thought about uh, the problem being that Stalin's too idealistic, (laughs) but I I do think it's a fair point to say, like, you know, and I think this comes down to the idea of human nature and what people think people are capable of. And this thing about carving society into impossible shapes. And it's like, that's not, the point isn't that imagination leads to bad things. The point is that bad things lead to bad things. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move on a little bit to talking uh, specifically where he starts bringing up anthropology here. Um, This section he calls blowing up walls. And this is like sort of one of my favorite things that Graeber does. He does this a lot throughout his works, Um, I guess, because he's an anthropologist. But the idea behind it, and it's called blowing up walls, and he says, uh, by blowing up walls, I mean, most of all, blowing up the arrogant, unreflecting assumptions which tell us that we have nothing in common with 98% of the people who ever lived, so we don't really need to think about them. Basically, what he's talking about is pre-modern societies, I guess the term would be. Um, He's saying that we sort of have this idea where we can't, anything that happened before industrialization say or i don't know maybe if you want to push it back a little further like since the renaissance like but nothing before that counts it was like as if we human beings were a totally different species back then um because of course if you do extend your gaze a little further back you know throughout again the the 98 percent of human history you're not counting there uh you, you end up seeing a lot of people living in ways that look a lot more like what anarchists describe. He brings up this great thing where he says, uh, the skeptical say, but those are all a bunch of primitives. I'm talking about anarchism in a modern technological society, but the dice are loaded. You can't win because even when the skeptic says society, what they really mean is state, even nation state. And since no one is going to produce an example of an anarchist state, because that would be a contradiction in terms, what we're really being asked for is an example of a modern nation state with the government somehow plucked away. And, uh, you know, so this sort of is underscoring the idea that that's not what we're talking about, that, um, you know, we're disc- you know, whatever an anarchist society is going to look like, it's going to look a lot different than a nation state, right? It's not just going to be like everything's the exact same, uh, but there's no government anymore. And I think the way that this whole exchange continues to like devolve, because the next section here then one is reduced to scouring the historical and ethnographic record for entities that look like a nation state, one people speaking a common language, living within a bounded territory, acknowledging a common set of legal principles, but which lack a state apparatus and 
as as Nate was just saying, that that doesn't exist in that way. Yeah, or he even says you can find them. Right, you can find them. He says he he even says like you can find them, but they're relatively small communities far away in time and space. Exactly. And so of course you're told that they don't count for exactly that reason. The way that this this entire like exchange progresses just um you know it's always it's always sidestepping and it's always coming to the idea well no 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 you know even if you've seen it 16 times throughout history throughout this one you gave me 16 examples it's it's not the same you can't compare it like you can't compare it to yeah that would never work in in like our society you know because again those were somehow not people yeah because our society lacks the imagination to believe that these um these sorts of ways of organizing ourselves and our communities could even happen and and it just yeah it shows that like you said like this lack of imagination this uh, this idea where we're trapped in this like a statist view where we can only imagine society as a nation state um but also in this like really chauvinistic view where human beings only became modern you know when they industrialized or i don't know uh pick whatever arbitrary date, but anything before then doesn't count. We're living in like a fundamentally different society than those people were back then. And mm-hmm. so therefore nothing from that could possibly apply to us. But we are not living in a fundamentally different sort of society than has ever existed before. And that is, again, the point that Graver is trying to make here. And I love it. I mean, again, I think that this maybe comes from his anthropology, but yeah. it's like once you start to like, once you lose that idea that uh, you know, anarchism is this thing that was invented in like the 19th century uh, by a bunch of Russians or whatever. Then, like, you start to realize that like anarchism is this thing that human beings have done since human beings existed, and that they've done it in a million different ways. And we have the luxury of sort of picking and choosing, you know, and uh, and deciding what we want our society to look like. Right, like where he's he says here, the existence of factories and microchips do not mean political or social possibilities have changed in their basic nature. The West might have introduced some new possibilities, but it hasn't canceled any of the old ones out. I think that's that's pretty important. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people conflate, especially capitalism with, is this idea of, well, capitalism is progress. Um, and these and the things you're talking about are before progress. And it's not it's not necessarily true, and, it, and I don't think it is true at all. We we've introduced new possibilities, but haven't canceled any of the old ones. I think that's an incredible kind of like way to look at it. And that really gets into my favorite part of this section: um, the idea that egalitarian societies haven't just haven't invented states yet, or they they haven't they didn't invent capitalism yet because they were somehow um, hierarchically less advanced than we are now, but um, introducing the idea of counterpower and the fact that they could be arguably, that they are and have been aware of the capacity for oppression, but build systems in to purposefully avoid oppression and domination that we, that we have based, you know, what we say is Western civilization on. Yeah, absolutely. What is counterpower then? Uh, the way that we're talking about it in here is that counterpower is first and foremost rooted in the imagination. So we're coming back to the importance of utopian imagination. It emerges from the fact that all social systems are a tangle of contradictions, 
always to some degree at war with themselves, or more precisely, it is rooted in the relation between the practical imagination required to maintain a society based on consensus. I love this quote as well, as any society not based on violence must ultimately be. And the consistent work of imaginative identification with others that makes understanding possible. And the spectral violence, which appears to be its constant, perhaps inevitable corollary. So a big kind of takeaway that I got from it is uh, the idea, and he he does list examples in our text if we'd like to go into examples, but um, the idea that this concept of domination and individualism, and I'm sure there are other adjectives for it, is just so ingrained in the way that we think in, you know, in modern Western imperialist society um, that the idea that it wouldn't be at the center of a different civilization's conception of themselves and organization just, it just does not cross our imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like this um, gets to something uh, we talked about a little bit in mutual aid too, where there's this, idea that uh you know anarchists or communists or utopians are somehow like denying some aspect of human nature trying to make like humans seem all like uh like warm and fuzzy you know and and deny that humans have the capacity for evil but actually uh that they think they thought better of it (laughs) yeah they like totally acknowledge that that human beings have the capacity for evil and tom you asked like what is counterpower? And in my mind, like counterpower is like what you institute to prevent the evil that you know is in people's souls from taking over. It's not like the idea that that humans have this capacity is new. It's that we're actively structuring our relationships with each other to put those tendencies in check. Right? They uh, gave the example of a gift economy. Um, versus barter that explains that pretty clearly and it kind of it's like it kind of debunks a myth right that i think is pretty pervasive that um early economic systems were based on like straight basic barter and one of the other anthropologists that graber talks about in here brings a different idea to the imagination and he says that like a lot of what we thought were barter societies um basically just because you know, we were coming from a market society and just imposing our our view on what we saw people doing. But he says like a lot of what we thought were barter societies were actually gift economies in which it's like basically uh, social recognition is commensurate with like how much you're able to give away. Um, and so like you can see how this sort of like is a like institutionalized counterpower mm-hmm. to anybody like accumulating too much stuff. Because like you live in a society where like you start to actually kind of get embarrassed when you have a lot of stuff laying around. You're like, oh man, it looks like it's time to have a potluck and give some of this stuff away again. People are going to love me. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, again, it's not denying that people can be selfish. It's like, it's constructing something that will sort of like redirect those, those maybe antisocial tendencies. Yeah, actually there's um this part in the book where he talks about in gift economies that are venues for enterprising individuals. Everything is arranged in such a way that they could never be used as a platform for creating permanent inequalities of wealth, since self-aggrandizing types all end up competing to see who can give the most away. 
uh, this, this was very interesting. In Amazonian or North American societies, the institution of the chief played the same role on a political level. The position was so demanding and so little rewarding, so hedged about by safeguards, that there was no way for power-hungry individuals to do much with it. Amazon, the company existed at the time that he wrote this, but it was not nearly as uh, prolific as it is now. And so the the juxtaposition of uh, Amazonian societies versus Amazon, the company, is a very interesting one, I think. Amazon could be an awesome gift economy. Not that um, we look uncritically at those societies either, as as the book goes on to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is it? We are talking about the fact that most Amazonians don't want to give others the power to threaten them with physical injury if they don't do as they're told. Maybe we should better be asking what it says about ourselves that we feel this attitude needs any sort of explanation. So he asked this question about can Amazonians be organizing against something they've never experienced? They've never, if you've never experienced this kind of hierarchy of, of wealth and power against people, then like, how can you be saying that it's intentional? Uh, but he says that we're talking about the fact that most Amazonians don't want to give others the power to threaten them with physical injury if they don't do as they're told. Maybe we should better be asking what it says about ourselves that we feel this attitude needs any sort of explanation. Makes you think. So I did want to talk about, um, he talks about magic worlds where in egalitarian societies, which tend to place an enormous emphasis on creating and maintaining communal consensus, it often appears to spark a kind of equally elaborate reaction formation, a spectral night world inhabited by monsters, witches, and other creatures of horror. It's the most peaceful societies, which are the most haunted, and their imaginative constructions of the cosmos by constant specters of perennial war. The invisible world surrounding them are literally battlegrounds. It's as if the endless labor of achieving consensus masks a constant inner violence, or it might perhaps be better to say, is in fact the process by which that inner violence is measured and contained, and it's precisely this and the resulting tangle of moral contradiction, which is the prime font of social creativity. And this area of the book, or the pamphlet or whatever, where he talks about uh, how these more egalitarian societies kind of construct monsters that they can have that they can fight and he talks about the idea is like you know some monster comes and and takes people away if they say the wrong thing that kind of thing um it's it's really interesting to me the idea that that's not like necessarily because they don't understand the world or something but just because they don't have as many monsters to deal with maybe like like where capitalism or hierarchy gives us a lot of people to look at as monsters and to understand as controlling monsters. Uh, these people seem to not have as many of those things going on. And so there's kind of like, well, something is causing problems. I was just stuck on the fact that if we build an anarchist society, not only do you get egalitarian social structures, you also get a night world populated by witches and ghosts. Yes. So <laughs> As if there wasn't already reason enough. Yeah, which I think is what he's trying to say, is uh, <laughs> is that we will we will now have that sort of a uh, you know fantastical night world of witches and ghosts. And uh, honestly, I take it over Bezos. I don't know. So if uh, nobody has anything else they want to say about counterpower, um, there is one last thing I wanted to talk about in the sort of anthropology, what can anthropology give us section of this book, which is a different idea about what a revolution looks like. So he talks in this about how the Russian revolution has sort of become the archetype of, of social revolutions, but that it actually is pretty unique as far as uh, social revolutions go. 
he says that our idea of social revolutions are comes sort of like from our idea of scientific revolutions. He says it's like, quote, the shift from a Newtonian to an Einstein-Dinian universe. Suddenly there's an intellectual breakthrough, and afterwards the universe is totally different. But applied to anything other than scientific revolutions, they would imply that the world really was equivalent to our knowledge of it. And the moment we change principles upon which our knowledge is based, reality changes too. Uh, and so, of course, that's not really how it happens. Uh, he says that's uh, that's the sort of thinking that children usually do. And he says that a lot of the time, revolutions look like what he calls slow revolutions, uh, where basically people just stop listening to the authorities. Where it's just not relevant, whatever it is they're doing up on those levels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Doesn't materially change your day to day anymore. For a while, I think he says you you should show up and like sign forms for the bureaucrats (laughs) yeah just fill out forms to let the bureaucrats have something to do yeah it it is interesting if you start thinking about uh at least you know in the u.s looking at major points in time uh the crash in 08 uh occupy wall street all of these things that you can see as like points in a timeline of a slow revolution in, in my view um would just be that you know, over the last decade, a lot of things have changed that I think has like changed a lot of people's way that they view the world. And it wasn't like people storming a building that might be a point in history that comes up, but it's not, um, it's not the only thing. It's not like, well, that happened and then everything shifted. Yeah, definitely. There's not going to be, what does he say? A fundamental rupture in the nature of social reality after which everything works differently and previous categories no longer apply. Yeah. So earlier like we brought up the idea of like, well, it's, you know, an anarchist society is not just going to look like society today with the state, you know, miraculously pulled away. But in another way, uh, the revolution will sort of just look like life today, like, and, you know, individual things changing slowly over time until, you know, one day you wake up and everything. You're like, oh, yeah, I guess at some point down the line, you know, we stopped living in the previous society. Yeah, it's going to be like your grandchildren or something asking you like, hey, what what was this like when you were kind of like, oh, I remember when we had cars and there was like no public, like it was not all public transportation. We had individual cars. It was so weird. Like, but it won't be like that happened all at once. It's going to be. Um, Elon Musk invents. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, couldn't help it. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be like you know that sort of thing. I think it's not going. You know, like we have public transportation. It's not hard to imagine a world that's more public transportation. But it is hard to imagine a world without any individual cars. Like nobody owns a car. Um, I think that's kind of hard to imagine. And but I like it. I like to think about that. And. Um, I think that would be part of the slow revolution, where it'd be like the gradual decline of that. Yeah, definitely. Where the anthropology comes in here is that he actually says that that is how, in the past, most successful forms of popular resistance have taken precisely this form. He says, they've not involved in challenging power head on, but from one or another strategy of slipping away from its grasp, from flight, desertion, uh, from the founding of new communities. And so it is like this idea of I don't know. We slowly stop listening, I guess. They slowly stop being relevant, maybe. Yeah. The police might be a better thing to to think of in a utopic way. Like the way that, you know, societies have thought about how our our relationship with the police in particular 
Um, and I feel like that's been shifting pretty gradually. And suddenly we've seen a little bit more of like a major shift in attitude towards it, I think. But um, there's there's a ways to go still, but we could probably look at that, I would hope, as like it's going to be a slow revolution where eventually we just say like the police aren't the police anymore. We are we are the police to, to an extent. Yeah. We are the people that take care of ourselves around these issues. And I think a lot of communities already have that going on. You know, like I don't experience that, but I know that that's the case for a lot of uh, people of color where it's just like, you know, they don't trust the police at all. And so they already have like a revolution around that. Yeah. I don't wonder, you know, you started talking about the police and, and I'm thinking about this slow revolution thing and trying to picture what it would look like. And I don't wonder if the presence of like so many like heavily armed police, you know, like surveilling every city street is going to make something like a slow revolution a little harder, you know, Airpoint. because if people like slowly stop following the government's laws, well, somebody might show up and shoot them. I don't know. It's a, uh, it's interesting. You know, I'm sure that we're not facing relatively speaking an unprecedented ability to wield violence, but I don't know. Yeah. I got to stop talking off the cuff. Cause that's, you're right. Like it's not like the police are just going to go away. <laughs> um, they're not just going to be like, well, it seems like our, we're, our work is done. And we're not needed. Cause people seem to stop relying on us because uh, that's not how it works. But um, I think, I guess I'm thinking of it in like the sense of, in my imagination of what the police are, like what people think of that institution and, that may be the, I think that's kind of like the first step towards where we see the kind of pushback that dismantles it, that like removes it. So we may be just looking at the shell of the police in its current state, trying to hold on to relevancy where we've already started to begin to move past that. But it, it still takes, it still takes work. Like, I think you gave a good example of like, you know, there are definitely like neighborhoods that are just like never going to be calling the police, you know, even if something happens to them. Yeah. The difference is like, there are still going to be things happening in those communities, but developing alternative ways of resolving conflict. The police are never just going to go away on their own accord. It's a matter of um, like, we've talked about building that new world within the shell of the old. Um, what again, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a term that I understand correctly but uh, along with the idea of counter power it's the idea of dual power where you're building up um, more democratic institutions alongside the state institutions until the other one is irrelevant and i think it's um doing it without the need to raise a black flag at you know inopportune moments um, doing it kind of silently alongside just like, as we said, continuing to show up and vote and fill out forms where the bureaucrats ask you to, but doing um, more important and uh, more important in terms of like revolutionary acts um, by showing up for day to day needs kind of thing. And that that's how we build counter power or dual power or both. They're a hierarchy. <laughs> the only hierarchy I recognize. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like looking at 2020, uh, where I saw a lot of, you know, politic stuff, a lot of uh, people, you know, w wanting people to go out and vote uh, alongside people literally giving people food, the food thing, <laughs> the mutual aid, uh, as as we say in the biz, 
was was way more impactful, I think. It just was like made a huge material difference when uh, our government was not providing anything. And we're still feeling that and we're still seeing that and it's still happening, which is great. We're still seeing these product these projects uh, pop up. There's there's one um, in, in my town that's like new-ish, at least uh, new to the parking lot outside of my workplace. And anyway, yes, it's very sweet. So we're sitting at about an hour here. Um, we haven't even gotten through all of this, let alone talked about the other one. Uh, what do you th- what do y'all think about like cutting this here and maybe seeing if we can turn this into two episodes and we'll just uh, finish up the notes on fragments, anything else we want to say about that? And then we'll talk about are you an anarchist next month? Okay, thank you everybody for listening. Um, this has been Works in Theory. Uh, we'll be back uh, next month with uh, the rest of our Graber content. Thank you to our producer slash editor, Forrest Frieder. And thank you to the person who made our theme song, Woog. Uh, you can find Works in Theory at uh, Works in Theory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Works Theory Pod on Twitter. Thank you and good night. Communism works in theory.